you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Ephesians 5, 21. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time today on one verse, which is like a quarter of a sentence, um, and it's where we're going to kind of park today as we continue our series on the family. We're talking uh, around the theme of no place like home, and we're spending uh, several weeks in Ephesians chapter 5, where the Bible gives us um, kind of the really the fullest picture um, in the New Testament that we have of what God's intentions are for the family and what his design is for the family. And last week we talked about marriage and how it's kind of like the cornerstone of the home. It's like the, it, it's really uh, the most significant relationship in the home. It's where, it's where home begins and uh, what exactly is marriage and how that works. That was last week. Um, this week we're going to talk about how to build a harmonious home, all right? And so uh, everybody wants to have harmony in their home, wants to have peace in their home. And if we're going to have a society filled with more harmony uh, and less dysfunction um, and less infighting and things of that nature, which is a problem in our culture today, uh, it starts in the home. We need less fighting in our homes. We need more cooperation in our homes. We need more friendship in our homes. We need more harmony in our homes because harmony makes everything better. If you know anything about music, I don't, but I know enough to know that I can't harmonize, okay? And so people that can, right, they can get up here and they can sing and they can sing in parts and all this kind of stuff. And for people like me, all we know is that sounds pretty, right? That sounds good. I can't do that. Um, but there was something about when you get people and they each sing the right part and they're all singing the right note and they begin to harmonize together, it's more pleasant to listen to than if everybody's kind of doing something out there and, it, and it kind of clanging all over each other. Well, in the same way, in the same way, in the home, uh, the home is more pleasant. The home is more functional. The family is a stronger unit when there is harmony, when everybody is kind of functioning according to their role, when everybody's in sync with the Lord. God wants our homes to be in harmony, and it will be a blessing to us when we experience it. Now, he lays out clearly in his word, particularly in the passage we're looking at the next several weeks, how he wants the home to function. Like I said last week, all we apply to our marriages, all we apply to our parenting all we apply to our families is the verses on the family. Uh, we're going to do ourselves a major disservice. We've got to apply the Bible to our family and all that it says about relationships and the gospel and how we treat people. But in Ephesians 5, he gives us our parts to sing, okay? He lays that out for us. He addresses marriage and parenting and being a child in the home. But there is a key ingredient, a foundational principle, the secret really to building our harmonious home, our home home. That's a hard thing to say. And that's found in Ephesians 5.21 and the verses before it actually. So I'm going to actually start reading in 5.15. I'm going to read all the way through verse um, 25 just for the sake of context. But we're going to really zoom in on verse 21 this morning. Familiar passage. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 5 starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he goes into the home. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're going to pause there. From there, he begins to just go even deeper into what does it look like for a husband to love his wife, how are parents supposed to uh, uh, lead their children, how are children supposed to respond to their parents in the home, and 
What this passage the Apostle Paul is giving us, though, the key right in the middle of it to relational harmony in all of our relationships, all of our relationships, particularly with other believers, but then we have to apply that to the family. And this is particularly true for the home. In verse 5, Chapter 5, verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is a swing verse building the bridge to the home environment from this passage on being filled with the Holy Spirit and how we're supposed to live the Christian life. The other verses tell us how we are to submit to one another. So when you read the passage on the home, wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives, children obey and honor your parents, parents instruct your children in the Lord, do not provoke them to anger. He's teaching how you're to submit to one another in the home in the context of home relationships because every relationship's a little different. But the foundation, the key, the verse that we must understand before we can really begin to apply all that is verse 21. If we don't embrace that and apply and be willing to apply it to all of our relationships, we can't properly embrace God's design in our homes. So 521 is a broad verse encompassing all relationships in the body of Christ. And if we... If we apply this verse, we will have healthier friendships. We'll have healthier churches, healthier marriages, healthier families, healthier workplaces, better relational health. So let's really kind of sit in this verse for a little while and look at it closely and go to some other, we're going to go to some other scriptures as well. But I want you to notice here the key to relational harmony right here in these four words, submitting to one another. The term for submit there was a military term that had the idea of falling under rank. Here the idea is very general, though. He says Christians are to submit to one another, right, to, to, every, to, to, each, to each other. So he's describing a certain attitude, a certain way to approach relationships, a certain way to do relationships within the context of the Christian life. And the church, for instance, we know is supposed to be a city on a hill. Jesus told us that, right? We're, a, we're the light of the world. We're a city on a hill. We are, we are to show the world, in a sense, what does it look like to be a community? What does it look like to do relationships together? We, we are to paint for them a picture, a model for healthy relationships, for healthy relationships with one another, for what it looks like to love and serve one another. That's part of our role. And we can't do that if we don't embrace these four words, submitting to one another. You know, Jesus himself taught that the relationships between Christians are supposed to be radically different than the relationships between other people out in the world. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples had been arguing who is the greatest among us, right? And they tended to argue about this at the most inconvenient times. Jesus would say, you know, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. What y'all been talking about? We're wondering who's the greatest among us. Well, it's like, well, first of all, guys, it's Jesus. Um, second, so it's not really up for debate here. Um, but they were always debating this. And so Jesus, two or three times in the Gospels, addresses this with them. And this is what he says on this particular time when he catches them arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. You know, right? So they're like, so once Jesus is gone, which one of us is going to be the greatest? In 10, Mark 10, 35, Jesus says this. It says, he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. So Jesus taught that the way to pursue greatness in, our, in, in the Christian life is different, right? The way to pursue greatness is via service, not through showing that we're better than other people, but by serving other people. And this is laying the groundwork for what Paul's saying in Ephesians 5.21 for this attitude of submitting to one another. Jesus goes on just a few verses later. It's recorded by Mark in Mark 10, 42-45. It says this, Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. 
But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when talking about how to use power here in this context, just a few verses later, authority, that Jesus taught you must use it to serve other people. Jesus made the most profound point on this when he said this, I myself, Jesus, the Messiah, he says, he himself came to serve, not to be served. The Son of Man, God in the flesh, right? The King of glory came to serve others, not to be served by others. So Jesus taught this attitude of serving, which at its core is about submission. He was saying, submit to the good of other people. Be committed to the well-being of your brothers and sisters. In another place he said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All of these teachings run together to give us this idea. In all of this, you have a repudiation of an attitude of pride, arrogance, and putting yourself first in the context of relationships. In our culture, we say this, well, you got to look out for number one. That's not such a problem except for when we say that, we always mean we're number one, right? And we're not supposed to be number one. And Jesus always taught, you got to look out for your neighbor, right? We know first and foremost, we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but the second commandment's like it, we're to love our neighbor. So when the Bible says submit to one another, it's echoing the very teaching of Christ. How, do, how we do that, though, can look different in relationship to relationship. But the attitude is the same. It's a servant-hearted attitude that seeks to bless and add to another, not seeking to take away, use, get what I can get out of it, but to bless, to add to, to seek their well-being, to serve them in that way. And the passage in the New Testament that I think best defines what Paul means here in Ephesians 5.21 is Philippians. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul wrote to the Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So the attitude that fosters the submissiveness in Ephesians 5.21, the servant-heartedness that Paul speaks of there in Ephesians, is the attitude of humbly considering others more significant than yourself. The attitudes that prevent servant-hearted submissiveness, he speaks of, are selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition is an ambitious drive rooted in self-seeking, seeking only your own good, selfishness. It's a drive where you are at the center of your personal universe rather than God's glory and others' good. Conceit is an empty glory and boasting that's rooted in yourself. It's all Both those words have self at the core right? It's all about looking after me. And at the very heart of New Testament relationships is supposed to be the idea that I don't exist for myself anymore. And you don't exist for me. I exist for God's glory and you exist for God's glory and I also exist for the good of others. Jesus turns everything on its head. He flips our world upside down when we come to know him personally. And as we pursue Christ, we will find ourselves pursuing the good of others just like Jesus did. So when you have the attitude that looks to others' interests, not merely your own, you now have the attitude that will create the type of submissive servant nature that Paul is speaking of as Ephesians 5.21 that's supposed to permeate all of the Christian, uh, all, all of God's people, all of the church, but also, in particular, it needs to permeate the family. Without this attitude, here's what we'll do. We will use other people. Now, we'll call it loving them, but we'll use them. 
Because that's what our flesh will do. If we're not postured to submit to the needs of others, to submit to the good of others, to seek to serve them, to bless them, then we will be postured to take from them what we want because we'll serve ourselves. Now, what does it mean to use something? Think about that for a second. It means you get what you want, then you discard it. And it can be something as simple as a paper plate, right? We use the paper plate, we throw it away. Or it can be something as expensive and as long-term as a car. But at the end of the day, it's functional. We get what we need out of it, we do away with it. Some people treat relationships the same way. There are some, man, they go through like paper plates. There are others, they last a lot longer. But either way, they're just kind of using it, getting what they can out of it. At the end, they don't view this person as an eternal person or as this relationship as an eternal relationship. It's all temporary, and it's all about what can it do for me right now. And we all tend towards this model if we don't pursue God's design for relationships because that's just the nature of being fallen and broken in this world. I mean, remember how quickly Adam and Eve turned on one another once sin came into the picture? I mean, God gives Adam this best friend to love and to cherish, and the moment she messes up and Adam messes up and God comes looking for Adam, Adam says, the wife you gave me, right? He immediately turns on Eve. Uh, okay, uh, you served your purpose here, um, and it's not went well, so I'm throwing you under the bus, right? And very quickly, because that's human nature, when we are not functioning according to God's design. It's to use people. It's when a parent is more concerned about their child embarrassing them than their heart's condition before God. It's a husband more concerned with his wife's physical appearance than her soul. It's a wife more concerned with her husband's income than his pursuit of God. All things that we begin to look selfishly towards. Instead of seeking their good for God's glory, we begin to seek our good for our glory or what we perceive as our in a relationship, this means i got to talk, but I've also got to listen. I might be giving counsel, but I also need to be willing to take counsel. It means I don't get to be an emotional vampire in the relationship, getting all I can and giving very little back. It means that I must be there for others, not just demand that they be there for me. Ultimately, though, it means I always seek the good of others. So in the family, this means that this attitude of seeking the good of my spouse begins to shape everything else. I act as husband or wife with a, uh, with a servant heart, with a desire to bless, not to use. It means as a parent, I act with a desire to serve my children's best interest in God's eyes, not merely protect my own reputation or demand that they meet my requirements. And in the coming weeks, we're going to see how each family member in the nuclear family is to submit to one another. In each relationship, there's a defined leader. Husbands are to serve their wives by considering, uh, by, um, is what one Bible scholar noted is this, by considering themselves submitted to their needs. They love them a particular way as Christ loved the church. They serve by leading like Christ. Wives, as we'll see next week, submit to their husband's leadership. This is not some anti-woman demeaning talk that Paul's putting out here. It's simply recognizing God's design for the home and being willing to function according to God's design. Children are to honor and obey their parents. That's how they serve them. Parents are to care for, instruct, discipline, and not provoke the anger of their children. Instruct them in the ways of the Lord. Submit to the needs of their kids. That's how they are to serve them. And when the family has a servant heart towards one another, it begins to change everything. It's a lot easier to submit to a leader, for instance, you know loves you. It has your best interest at heart and is seeking your good and not merely their own. And vice versa, it's a lot easier to lead when you know one... It's considering your, your own needs as well. When people are loving and serving one another, considering other people more significant than themselves, it begins to radically change how we treat one another, and it builds trust within the home. So instead of 
well, how can I get my wife to, or how can I get my husband to, or my parents to, or how can I get my children to do this? We begin to ask this, how can I better bless my husband or my wife or my children or my parents? As one person put it, the question that will revolutionize our relationships, any relationship, particularly in the home, is this question, how can I serve? That's a hard question to ask because it makes you vulnerable. <coughs> Why would we do this anyway? This is a vulnerable posture to be in if you think about it. This idea of submitting to another, to serving their other, to putting yourself in a position where you're going to count their significance and you're going to take them into account and you're going to look to serve them. Why would we even do that? Well, Paul gives us the motive. The motive for this mutual submission is what he's talking about here is this. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ out of reverence for Christ. The chief motive, the core motive, is Jesus. We do this out of reverence for Him. And motivation matters, right? People make lots of money to motivate people. Motivational speakers, right? The really good ones, there's, there's the ones that are motivational speakers that aren't really good and they like need real jobs. And then there's the one. it's like they're either poor or they're millionaires, right? Because if you're good at it, right, motiv- motivating people pays a lot. It's why they pay football coaches millions of dollars because they can motivate a team to win because motivation really matters. And so Paul knows... Relationships are hard. And submitting to one another does not sound fun. So we need to be motivated. And he says, here's your motive. It's out of reverence for Christ. Your motive is Jesus. Reverence there means fear in the literal translation. It's the idea of reverential awe. Of just being awestruck by the greatness and the majesty of Christ. It's absolute reverential worship of Him. The point is... Because we worship, fear, and respect Jesus, because Jesus is our supreme authority, we're willing to submit to and serve others. Because I know who's ultimately in charge, because I know who is ultimately Lord, and because I'm submitted to Him, and I respect Him, and I love Him, and I want to serve Him, it makes it easier to serve other people. Before Christ, we are at the center of our own universe. That's the, way we're, that's the way we function. We're in charge of our own lives. And when we come to know Christ, we begin to honor Him, submit to Him as Lord, because He is, and we recognize that. And our lives, are no, our, our lives begin to be centered around Him. Our lives are no longer about something. Our lives begin to be not about us primarily, but about Christ. But apart from Christ, our lives are not centered around Him. Our desires and our purpose are all that are disconnected from Him. And life is not really about Christ, it's about us. Our reverence for Christ leads us to love others, to seek others good, to serve others. Because when Christ is at the center, when He is preeminent in our lives, everything else begins to fall into proper place because you begin to see things clearly. See, without that, everything gets out of order. Because the thing that's most primary, primary in life is not in its rightful place. And so therefore, nothing can tend to be in place. You just can't seem to fit the pieces of the puzzle together because you're missing the most important piece of the puzzle. And what we begin to see happen is when, when it's out of reverence for Christ, it begins to answer a lot of our questions and a lot of our whatabouts. Well, my spouse is not all that. They're selfish. They get on my nerves. Their lives really are all about themselves. Well, yours is about Jesus. And so you treat them the way you do or should out of reverence for Christ, not because they're awesome. Your spouse may not be awesome at all. Don't point or anything like that this morning, but they may not be awesome at all. 
My parents are stubborn. I don't like the way they do this or they do this. It's not about them. It's about Jesus and speaking to them towards, out of reverence for Christ. My kids are this way. You don't understand. I can't do it. It's not about them. It's about reverence for Christ. Primarily, our relationships with other people are not about the other people. Primarily, as a Christian, my relationship with you and your relationship with me and our relationships within our family are about Jesus and our relationship with Him. And many times, our relationship with God and the condition of it and the health of it is revealed through our relationships with others. All our family members, listen, Every family member you got is with sin. Every single one of them. All of our, and you are too, and so am I. All of them are with sin. And you don't have a single family member on the face of the planet who's not a sinner. And other than the one who is... There's a, and there's, listen, we only have one person in our life, one relationship, that is without sin. Right? And that's Jesus. Only Jesus is without sin. And it's Him we revere and respect and fear to the ultimate. It's Him we worship. And that informs our other relationships with those who are with sin. Because we have a relationship with someone who is without sin, it begins to shape and mold our relationship for those who are with sin. When you revere the one without sin, you can better love and serve the ones with sin. But that's got to happen. See, I can love and serve an imperfect family member or friend when I revere Christ for who He is, the Son of God. It's His glory I seek and not mine. He's the main thing, not me. I can be offended. It's Him that I don't want to offend, right? It begins to shape things. When I revere Him for what He's done for me and what He's done for them, He laid down His life for me. I'm not my own. I've been purchased at a price. Not only that, He laid down His life for them. Well, they're getting on my nerves and they're annoying. Well, Jesus died for them and that's enough. They are one for whom Christ died. Jesus didn't seek to use them, but to serve them. Who am I to not serve them if Jesus is willing to serve them? It begins to shape when I have shape that relationship when I begin to revere Christ for what He desires for me. He's my Lord. He's my boss. He says serve. He says love. He says submit. He says honor. And that's enough, right? Because of who Christ is. See, my view of Jesus is supposed to shape and mold my view of others and my response to them. It's supposed to motivate me to think and act like Him toward others. The Bible teaches how we treat others is a reflection many times of our relationship with God. As I mentioned earlier, First John says you can't love God whom you haven't seen if you can't love your neighbor whom you have. It just says it's preposterous. It just lays it out like it's preposterous. How in the world can you say you love God whom you haven't even seen when you can look your neighbor in the eyeball and hate their guts? You can't love God. You can't even love those who are made in His image. See, it's a, the Bible gives us this. There's correspondence there. Our relationship with God many times will manifest itself in how we view the people created in His image. Because though the image is marred, the image is there. It's there. And if we're all honest... Relationships are hard. They're difficult. And they can be particularly difficult in the family. We get tired. We make mistakes. We let our guard down more. People hurt us. We hurt people. We struggle to get along at times. We struggle with pride and selfishness, and that can manifest itself in the family pretty quick. Most of us realize that we really can't do this in our own power. If you've lived long enough, you've figured that out. It's overbearing. And the good news is you don't have to. You were never intended to. You were never meant to. God knows what you need to have a healthy family. 
you need him. And he wants you to have all you need. So he offers you himself. So right here in this passage, it reveals to us not only the motive for living this way, it, really, it, it reveals to us the power for living this way. Look back up from verse 21. When he says, he says starting in verse 15, he talks about walking not as unwise but as wise, not being foolish, understanding God's will. And then verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, right? That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what we see here is verse 21, submitting one another out of reverence for Christ is one of four fruits of being expressions of being filled with the Holy Spirit. In context, when you step back, we see the direction given here for God's design in the home comes on the heels of being urged to be filled with the Spirit. I don't think that's coincidence that Paul went from that to that because he knows we can't function well in our homes if our homes aren't spirit-filled homes. Mutual submission to one another is a byproduct of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says we need to walk in wisdom and maximize our time. He says we need to be foolish and, not, and to know God's will. Well, then he got, got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, and here's what that looks like, how it will manifest itself in your life. And when filled with the Spirit, we see the results of corporate singing and teaching one another with Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs like we've just done. Melody to the Lord with our heart. In other words, it won't just be about the songs I sing. It's really about the melody to the Lord in my heart. It'll be about thankfulness. I'll be a thankful person, a grateful person. I'll show gratitude. Did you know that? <laughs> right? Well, a chief characteristic of the ungodly in Romans 1 and 2. When you look in the first part of Romans, when he's laying out what it looks like to be far from God, one of the chief characteristics is they don't thank God. And one of the chief characteristics of being filled with God's Spirit is thankfulness. Man, that, this, that in of itself will change our relationships. But then mutual submission. See, being spirit-filled leads to harmony with God. It leads to harmony within the church. The kind of at, and it leads to the kind of attitude that helps produce harmony relationally, including the home. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? He says, do not get drunk with wine. In other words, rather than be drunk on alcohol, Christians are to be controlled by the Spirit. The dominant influence in your life is not to be alcohol or any substance or anything for that matter but Jesus but the Holy Spirit God's Spirit is to be the dominant influence on our life and if our life is dominated by alcohol or our life is dominated by some other drug or for that matter if we're drunk on the things of the world figuratively speaking if the dominant influence in our life is not God's Spirit then we can't operate according to God's design to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be under His influence, directed by Him, empowered by Him. And it requires that we be yielded to Him. See, if we live our life disconnected from God, we can't be shocked if our families are disconnected from one another. Think about that. If we're not in sync in our relationship with God and being empowered by Him, filled with His Spirit, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second, we can't be surprised when our marriages are broken and our relationships are broken within the home, when there's all this tension, when if we're not properly connected to and relating to God. It's the Spirit who empowers us to be steadfast and endure when people get difficult. And they do, and we do. We're all difficult people because we're people. We all have our issues. And it's the Spirit that helps us see people like Jesus sees people and not simply like our flesh wants to see people. It's the Spirit that enables us to love when we don't feel like loving. And you're not always going to feel like loving. 
It's the Spirit who humbles us so that we respond to others with grace and mercy and seek to bless others and not use others and cast others off because we're just tired of them. If we're not operating by God's power, we will become self-centered, easily offended, relationally lazy, unforgiving, cynical, overly critical, a bully. <clears throat> These are all the ways we operate when instead of operating by the Spirit, we begin to operate in the flesh. And we're all prone to do it from time to time. We are made to do relationship in the Spirit's power. I've used this before, but it's like if you go outside on a non-windy day and try to fly a kite, you will think kite flying stinks, right? You'll be like, this is the dumbest thing. Who invented this, right? You just run around out there and there's no wind, right? But you go out there on a day like today, we're about to have some wind. You go out on the beach on a very windy day, and man, you can have the time of your life out there flying one of those things until you just get bored with it, right? But you'll, you know, you say, how high can I get it to go and all this kind of stuff, and because kites are made for the wind, and without the wind, they don't function like kites. And you, Christian, are made for the wind of the Spirit. Your life is meant to be lived not in your power, but the Spirit's power. Without the wind of the Spirit, so to speak, without the Spirit empowering us, without the Spirit lifting us to live according to God's design, we will be frustrated. How could we not be frustrated? God's design was not meant to be pursued by us living on an island separated from God doing our own thing. It was meant to be pursued in his power. And this text calls us to continually be filled. It means literally continually be filled with the Spirit. Not a one-time thing. It's all of life, doing all of life yielded to the Spirit's power. So you say, how can I do that? How can I live a Spirit-filled life? Well, it's simple. We've mentioned this before, but it's, it bears repeating. First of all, you need to ask God to help you. You need to ask for the Spirit to empower you. You, you, need to, you need to pray, right? If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. He resides in you, but it is a choice of whether or not you will yield to the Holy Spirit. So you need to ask God, help me to yield to the Spirit. Empower me by your Spirit. And you, you got to pray. you got to ask. And you need to believe. You need to believe. You need to ask in faith. Jesus talked a lot about that. We need to pray believing that when we ask God for help, that he will help. When we ask him for strength, he'll give us strength. And we need to rest in that. We need to rest in Christ and what he's done. We need to rest in God's love for us demonstrated in Christ. We need to believe and trust that the Holy Spirit will fill us. And then I, this is one where most people get off the boat, right? We ask and we say we believe, but whether you believe or not will be manifested in this. You've got to cooperate with the Spirit. There is no such thing as a spirit-filled person who does not cooperate with the spirit by yielding to him. That means we read, obey, and apply the spirit-inspired word of God. It means we talk regularly to God in prayer. It means our life has assumed a posture of, I'm going to obey God, not when, I, when it feels right, but I'm going to obey God, right? It means when I come to the Bible... It's, God, I want to hear from you today. I want, to, I want to grow in my relationship with you. I'm not looking for ways to justify my actions. I'm not looking for ways to, to justify the argument I had to prove to myself that I'm, I'm coming to you today, not even thinking, well, if I like what I hear, I'll apply it. But God, I'm coming to your word. I come to church. I hear your word. I get in the word on my own. I read the word. And all I'm looking for is what do you want me to do? And whatever your word reveals, I'm willing to walk in it, right? It's that kind of attitude. That's cooperating with the Spirit. But when we treat God's word like a buffet, right? Where it's kind of like, well, I'll have a little of this and a little of that, but I'm going to leave this. You know, there was like, I heard this week, there was like a whole conference, like a whole conference over in um, Lynchburg, Virginia, 
about all based around Christians getting together, and I don't think there was very many of them. It was like 300 of them, so that's not very many um, for a big conference. All about how the, the red-letter words of Jesus. And it's a conference committed to only living by the red-letter words of Jesus because all the other words in the New Testament are really making us look bad. That ain't cooperating with the Spirit. That's repulsive to the Holy Spirit. Right? If you don't like the red-letter words, I mean, excuse me, if you don't like the words in black, so to speak, in your Bible, they're inspired by the same Jesus, by the, by the same God who spoke the red-letter words. Right? There's no difference. There's no difference. That was never meant to be in our Bibles as a way for us to decide what we thought we could hold on to and what we thought we should discard or what was more important. It's there to help us with reading the text so we can understand the flow of the conversation. It's that coming to that Bible with the attitude of, I just want to hear from God, I want to obey God, and I believe this is God's word and I'm willing to apply it. We've got to have that posture. That's the posture of cooperating with the Spirit of God. And when we ask for God's help, we believe, right, that when we, when we pray that God answers prayer, and we rest in Him, and we're willing to cooperate with whatever the Spirit wants to do in our life. I'm telling you, you can live a Spirit-filled life. You can live a Spirit-filled life. That's what it looks like to yield to the Holy Spirit. None of this is possible, though, apart from a life-changing experience with the servant of God. That was one of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah in Isaiah, was that he would be the servant of God, and that is Jesus. The servant. That's why he says, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. Only when we have experienced the saving power of Jesus in our lives can we have access to the life-changing power to serve, bless, and love others well. See, Jesus, like I said, he laid down his life as a ransom. That's the chief way, chief way he served. He served God. He fulfilled the Father's plan and laid down his life for you and for me, dying in our place and rising from the dead. And experiencing his love, experiencing the gospel, the impact of the gospel by believing the good news of the gospel, changes us. And only when we realize how much God has loved us, despite our sin, can we receive the power to love others as God desires. And it's only when you've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior that you're given access to the Holy Spirit. So it's really impossible. Apart from Christ. He, the Spirit begins to reside in the believer. And He can and will empower the believers we spoke about. But first, we've got to cross the line of faith. First, we've got to trust Christ. Now here's the thing. Before we go any further in the series... Let's ask God today as we close. How can I better love? How can I better serve? How can I be more considerate of my family members? Or any of my relationships, my friendships, you name the relationship. Say, Father, have I, have I been humble in my relationships? Have I considered others in my relationships? Are there, are there blind spots that I have? Have I sought to serve others? Am I submitted to the good of others, to those in authority? Am I submitted to those in authority over me? If I'm in authority, am I submitted to the needs of those that you put in my care? Do I, do I take them into account? Do I realize I'm here to, to serve them? And if you don't know Christ today, relational transformation in the home and out of the home starts there. That is the primary relationship. Unless things can be done out of reverence for Christ, they'll never be what they could be. In God's design. Let's pray.